Amen. Thank you, Robin. Go ahead and get in your Bible to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. I hope after we uh, go through these sections of the Scripture that if you went home and read the section we covered, you'd feel like you learned something. And I hope that uh, you also would be able to uh, go home and say, wow, this is how I can apply that. And um, that, that's my hope when I teach. Appreciate Brother Greg uh, teaching last week. And uh, two weeks ago when I taught last on a Wednesday, we talked about uh, our afflictions for Christ's church. We learned that Paul's sufferings were not just for Christ, that they were also for the Lord's churches, for God's people. There are some afflictions, there is some suffering for the Lord's church that you and I are expected to bear. And though Jesus Christ fully paid the price uh, for the church with his blood, we each pay a price to see Christ's church fulfill her mission. And we learned uh, about one of the mysteries in the New Testament. Remember, a mystery, as the word is used in the Bible, is a truth that was not revealed previously, either in the Gospels or uh, in the Old Testament. And that mystery uh, that we talked about last time was Christ living inside Gentile believers. The Old Testament, of course, prophesied that the Messiah would uh, influence and reach the Gentiles. Uh, Jesus Christ told his Jewish disciples on his last night that the Spirit would live in them, but it was a previously unrevealed truth that Christ, uh, in the person of the Spirit, would live inside Gentile believers as well. And we rejoiced that the Holy Spirit lives in us as believers that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost, and we have so many privileges as believers because Christ lives in us. Now, the only truth directly stated to be a mystery in the Gospels was the expanded vision of what uh, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven uh, would be. Uh, but there are also several other mysteries, truths previously unrevealed in the Old Testament in the Gospels that are revealed to us in the rest of the New Testament. And in the section of the Scripture we're going to cover tonight, there is another mystery that uh, Paul is going to speak about, and he's going to uh, expose his heart a little bit. He's going to expose the kind of burden that he had for Gentile believers and churches uh, who had not yet met him face to face. Now, none of us, of course, have met the great Apostle Paul face to face. He's been in heaven for over 1,900 years. But the same burden and heart he had for the believers in the church in Colossae is the kind of burden that he would have uh, for Bible Baptist Church and for us as believers tonight. Uh, did you know that there is something more valuable than silver and gold? More valuable than lands or houses or our 401k. You'd stand tonight if you're able to stand. In honor the word of God, the tell of my thought is the riches of understanding. The riches of understanding. By the way, to the best of my knowledge, I'm fully better, but my sinuses are uh, just still running like crazy. So if I have to cough into my uh, uh, elbow, please just... Forgive me and pray that I don't keel over. Uh, the riches of understanding. Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. says, To whom God would make known what is the riches 
of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. For I would that you knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, be knit together in love unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Thank you, might be seated. We started tonight with the context of verse 28, which is in verse 27, the riches of the mystery of Christ living inside Gentile believers. And like so much of chapter 1, the focus is on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And Paul is laying a foundation in chapter 1 because in chapter 2, he's going to address a couple of false doctrines that were being promoted uh, and spreading among believers in the city of Colossae. You remember how he's kind of done that? Do you remember uh, how he told us what Christ had already done for believers in verses 13 and 14, how we're already redeemed and forgiven? It says, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood. You remember that? You may remember the uh, power and prominence of Jesus Christ in creation. He's not a creature. Uh, He's the creator. Verses 15 and 16, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. You may remember that because of what He's done for us already and because of who He is, His power uh, in creation as the Creator, you may remember the preeminence that He deserves from verse 18. And He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. And all of that leading up to verse 27 Uh, That mystery of Christ in the Gentile believers is in some way a leading statement and the context of verse 28, which is number one, because of who Jesus is, we are to preach Christ. Because of who Jesus is, we are to preach Christ. And verse 28 of chapter 1 says, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Hear me when I say it is not just what we preach, it is who we preach. We preach Christ. Though Christ is not all we preach, our message to the world begins with the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, in in our world today, there's a big movement going on. It's a a gospel-centered movement, what they call themselves, and they have a gospel coalition, and they have gospel uh, conferences and all those kinds of things. And at first glance, when you first hear it, it may sound good to say things like the gospel is all we preach or the gospel is the 
focus of all of our preaching or the gospel is all that matters. Listen, those are all misleading statements. To say the gospel is all we preach or that the gospel is all that matters is either changing the definition of what the gospel is or is a misleading statement. You see, the gospel, the word gospel, as the New Testament uses the word, is the good news that those who believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, will, who choose to humbly call upon Him, they will be saved. That's the gospel, as the New Testament defines those words. And we're not directly talking about this tonight, but understand that the gospel is more than just the facts about Jesus Christ. What I was taught as a young believer is you want to define the gospel, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where it says, and Christ was uh, uh, crucified and died according to the Scriptures and buried and was raised after three days according to the Scriptures. That's That's the gospel information. But that's not the whole gospel. Multiple times in the New Testament, we're taught to obey the gospel. And so there's an aspect of the gospel that is not just the facts of the gospel. The gospel itself also has an admonition to believe those facts, to receive that Savior that is presented in the facts of the gospel. You see, our message begins with preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ so people can be saved, but our message continues to preach what Christ said and did, Hear me when I say no Christian grows far who is only familiar with the gospel. We are commanded to teach everything that Christ taught, to preach Christ. And though a preacher may use personal illustrations, no preacher is supposed to preach themselves. We are supposed to preach Christ. Uh, We are here to preach Christ. But notice we're not just here to preach Christ. Look at verse 28 goes, says, whom we preach warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom. We preach Christ, but we're here also to warn every man and to teach every man in all wisdom. You see, our goal in doing those three things is the end of verse 28, that we may present every man perfect in Christ. Perfect. As you read that word in the New Testament, it refers to mature. It refers to complete. You see, my job as the leader here and the job of every spiritual leader here isn't just to preach the gospel. We start with that. It is our job also to warn every man and to teach every man in all wisdom. By the way, aren't you glad that our message is for every person? Three times in that one verse, did you notice the repetition of every man? Christ died for the sins of the world. One of my goals as a pastor, as a preacher and teacher of the Bible, is to do so in a manner that moves you to become more mature. To do so in a manner that causes you and moves you and motivates you to become more complete. More complete as a human being, more complete as a follower of Jesus. It's a shame to me that so many churches and spiritual leaders present a partial and incomplete picture of Jesus Christ. Because in doing so, though they may have 
a bigger crowd and be more applauded by our culture, they produce believers whose growth has been stunted. Stunted because they do not warn every man. Stunted because they do not teach every believer in all wisdom. Listen, the gospel is the only means of salvation, but it is not the means to Christian maturity. Preaching Christ, warning and teaching every person all the things of God sounds like an easy task, doesn't it? But it's a lot more difficult than many think it to be. By the way, because it is more difficult than many think it to be, a lot of people don't do it. Listen, it's very easy for you to sit back there and think the preacher ought to say this and and say that and get on them about this. Listen, you're not the one who uh, gets the calls or texts while I'm leaving. Listen, we ought to be careful being uh, critical of pastors and spiritual leaders who shave some of the tough stuff off. It's not an easy thing to do. You really have to have faith in God and faith in the people to whom you preach. In fact, one of the biggest reasons spiritual leaders quit ministry is from their perspective, they think ministry is too hard. We we need spiritual leaders who have applied themselves to learn the Scriptures and not just the pleasant, easy parts. We need spiritual leaders with good courage to preach and teach all the counsel of God in love, with grace, and with clarity. We need believers who are willing to hear that. Most believers don't want to attend a church like this. Uh, I have kept track of first-time visitors ever since we started. Uh, Every week, I pray for seven first-time visitors. Uh, In 16 and three-quarter years, we've had 11 weeks where we didn't have one first-time visitor. Five of them were during COVID. If you figure out the number of people who visited here, and I didn't look on my list, it's like 6,700 and some at this point, and divide it out, it's like 7.8 first-time visitors uh, per week. But if you figure out how many people visit here versus how many people join here, it's about 1 in 11. Say, why? Why? Listen, most people, they don't want to do what you're doing tonight. Uh, listen, I get it. I, I remember sitting in the, in the pew. For, I was a, quote, layperson for, for 13 years, an assistant pastor for, for eight years. I remember sitting there thinking sometimes, wow, man, it, does it ever get easier? When, when, when is there not something that I need to be working on? And if I felt like that, you certainly must feel like that sometimes too. And and, and it's really easy for people to say, you know what, I'm done with the pressure. I I don't want to live on all all this pressure to conform to the image of Christ. I don't want to live under all this pressure to be committed to the Lord's church. I don't want to live under all this pressure to tithe. I don't want to live under all this pressure to be a witness. And so they stop. Because you can find plenty of places that don't do what happens behind this pulpit 
every time someone's behind it. But we're told to do this, to preach Christ, to warn, to teach in all wisdom in a difficult world. Listen, there is a God who is interested in people who will do that and in people who will hear that. Keep your hand there. Go back in your Bible to Isaiah 28. You know, I think a lot of times we lose sight of how people grow. And because of that, we give up on them. Because of that, we sometimes think too little of them. I think it's very easy for people who have been saved 20, 30, 40 years to forget what it was like to be a new believer. To, to forget what it was like when you were young and, and trying to sort through all your emotions and all your desires and everything that the people around you that are your friends and family, we, we forget what that was like. And, and we become too impatient and too intolerant. There's a healthy growth process and a healthy growth process is not in big spurts. Say, so what is a healthy growth process? Isaiah 28, verse 10. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. By the way, if that verse isn't highlighted in your Bible, it should be. It is a Bible principle for growth. And what happens when someone doesn't put a line upon a line and a precept upon a precept and a little and a little that was already there, uh, you get frustrated. Listen, we, we have people who visited here for five years but have never joined. We've had people come here for years who've never obeyed Christ in baptism. We have people who've been here over 10 years that, to my knowledge, don't work in any ministry whatsoever. Say, so what do you think about that, Brother Wally? Hey, you know what I think about it. I think they should. But in the meantime, I'm just supposed to be patient and gracious and preach the truth and love you regardless of whether you do what I say. Because healthy growth is line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little. And if we're ever going to reach our world, we need to understand that most of our world isn't like us. Most of the Christian world is not like us. And most churches like this one fail because they are too impatient and intolerant of people who are not yet like them. We need to not be like that. And you go back to our text. You see, we are to preach Christ and warn everyone and teach them with all wisdom so that they might become mature, that they might become perfect uh, in Christ. And you and I just simply need to purpose in our heart to do everything we can to be what we're supposed to be, do what we're supposed to do, and leave what happens as a result of that to God in fact, that's how verse 29 goes. He says, we're into, I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. Paul described his ministry as labor. 
He described it as striving. Our word that's translated there, it's the same word that we get agonized from. You know, ministry has never been easy. Whoever was the kindergarten teacher in the First Baptist Church in Jerusalem, you know what? It was tough with them kids. And when they ran chariots into the poor parts of town to pick up kids and bring them in whose parents didn't come, you know, those kids were rowdy. It's always been the same. And God's people were either, for Christ's sake, going to focus on doing what we're supposed to do ourselves and just simply preaching Christ, warning people, teaching people with all wisdom, striving and working and praying that God would mightily use us. By by the way, you, you and I don't really always know or rightly evaluate whether God is working in us mightily or not. I do believe numbers matter, but I think they matter too much to too many people. That's why I don't talk about them very much here. I I don't want us focused on numbers. I want us focused on people. But there's an aspect of ministry that has to do with our striving and our labor, and then there's an aspect of ministry that is God working or God working mightily. I'm told there was a small country church who called for the resignation of their pastor at the end of the year because he preached for a year with no visible results. I'm told that when he closed with the church, he said this, we've not had a good year. Of course, we did see wee Bobby Moffat come forward. It's a little kid. I know one in the congregation took that little boy being saved seriously. The pastor left. The interesting thing is Robert Moffat grew up to be a missionary to Africa and is one of the guys who blazed trails in Africa and translated the Bible in a language called Setswana. (laughs) See, in man's eyes, it was no big deal that we, Bobby Moffat, had come forward and gotten saved. And you and I need to be careful at what we define as something happening. Do you highly value all of those or just preaching Christ? Do you highly value a spiritual leader who warns you and other people? Everybody in here values preaching and preaching Christ. If you didn't value preaching Christ, you, you, you either got drugged here by somebody else or, or, or you're just here for family. We, we basically, everybody in this room probably believes we ought to preach Christ, but there's a lot of people in this room, you, you, little, you, you bristle some when, when somebody up here warns. That's a part of healthy Christianity. It's a part of healthy spiritual leadership. Te- teaching God's people how to live wisely. It's a part of healthy Christianity. Do you highly value all those? Uh, may God help us all to not be a part of the dumbing down of American Christianity that characterizes our day. Notice next that Paul had a huge burden for the believers in Colossae and Laodicea, though he hadn't been there. Chapter 2, verse 1, for, though, or for I would that you knew what great conflict I have for you, 
and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. You may remember when we started the book, when I introduced it, I had mentioned that Paul had not personally been to Colossae. And since Colossae was about 100 miles from the city of Ephesus, and Ephesus was a great center of revival during Paul's second missionary journey, and it says as a result of that, all Asia heard about Jesus Christ. Uh, most people assume that the city of Colossae was evangelized at that time, and it may have been evangelized by somebody that Paul won and trained in ministry in Ephesus 100 miles away. Uh, Paul couldn't be everywhere. He was just a man. But as we follow his life through the book of Acts, we find him always traveling with a team of people, not just a team of people who helped him and were seasoned, like Luke and Timothy and Silas, but also a bunch of other men whose names are barely mentioned, who are men who he was training for ministry, who would travel and go other places and do what he did. And though Paul hadn't been there, his heart was way more like Christ than most of our hearts because he was deeply burdened and concerned for the churches in these cities, even though he hadn't met them. Now, when we think about the city of Laodicea, we're familiar with it because it is one of the seven churches that uh, Christ addresses in the book of Revelation. And 30 or 40 years after this letter of Colossians was written, uh, by the time we get to Revelation uh, chapter 3, the church in the city of Laodicea, it was lukewarm. And on the verge of being spewed out of the mouth of Christ. In fact, his message to them kind of concludes with him standing outside the door of the church knocking because he wasn't in there anymore. That's a not a good place for a church to be. But that's where Laodicea was 30 or 40 years after this letter. When this letter was written, that lukewarmness in Laodicea hadn't yet occurred. Uh, that would occur in the next generation. With the children of those who would have received this letter that we're studying. You see, complacency in the faith of grandparents and parents hurts children and grandchildren much more than it hurts those people who have been biblically educated and heard Bible messages and yielded to Christ for decades. People from churches like this who go to churches that are not like this don't hurt themselves as badly as they hurt their children and grandchildren. Though it hurts them too. It's just not as obvious. And Paul wanted and was burdened not just for Colossae, but for Laodicea as well. In fact, he speaks there uh, about his great conflict that he has for them. It's the same word as strivings up uh, top in verse uh, 29 or 28. And it's the same agony. Paul had a burden in his heart for these people he hadn't even yet met. You see, in this, later in this chapter, Paul's going to build on this foundation of Christ we talked about earlier, and he's going to talk about a couple of false doctrines that were creeping into the church and the believers there. But before he gets to that, he wants to expose his heart for them. 
Did you see that? I would that you knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea and for as many as have not seen my face. You see, there's something powerful when truth is spoken in love. Something powerful when someone speaks to you from their heart. There's a proverb that says something about as face answereth to face, so the heart of man to heart. If you want to reach a heart, you have to use a heart. You don't reach people's hearts with your head. And Paul wants to be sure that they understand the heart he has for them. And what I would say is, for anybody, for God to use them mightily, like he spoke about back in verse 29, I'm going to say this, you need a deep concern for the people you try to preach and warn and teach. Paul had that. It's part of what made him effective. You see, he not only had their attention because of the greatness of our Savior, he had their attention because of the tenderness of his heart. Paul was a clear speaker of truth, but he was not a cold speaker of truth. You see, from the depths of his heart, he's going to be upfront about what he hopes for with them. He wants what he wants for them and their church. By the way, I think it helps all of us to know what someone's getting at. I mean, what do you want? Uh, by the way, I make no bones uh, about it. Uh, when, when you come here, uh, my desire is for you, if you're unsaved, to be saved. And for you, if you're saved, to get baptized. If you're saved and baptized, for you to become a part of a biblical church and for you to find your gifts from God and serve Jesus Christ in every area of your life, all your days. I'm no, I, I have no other major goals. It's what I want. And though I do so imperfectly, Paul's desires that he's going to speak about here, they're the same as my desires for you. In fact, I wish that every spiritual leader here had these desires for those you try to lead and help. See, what were the desires of his heart for these believers whom he'd not personally met? Look at chapter 2 and verse 2. Paul lists his desires, number three. He says that their hearts might be comforted, be knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. Those are pretty clear. He wanted them to have their hearts comforted. Listen, there's patience and comfort in the Scripture. Romans 15 says that. Do you ever, before you read your Bibles, pray something like this? Lord, please as I read, grant me the patience and comfort of the Scripture that I might patiently face what's ahead of me today. That I might be able to comfort others with the comfort that I have from you. Do you ever pray that? There's comfort to be found from the Holy Spirit that lives in us. He is the Comforter. There's comfort to be found uh, from other believers who have found the comfort of God themselves. Listen, there's some people, they're genuine believers, but they don't seem to ever really have grasp hold of the comfort and joy of God. They, they don't live with His comfort and joy and peace for one reason or another. And there's some that do. And when you find those, listen, they can be a comfort to you. 
And in a world filled with turmoil, a world in the end time iniquity abounding and making love wax cold. Listen, there is comfort to be found. I pray you'd find it tonight. Comfort of God. But he didn't just want their hearts confident. No, he comforted. He also wanted their hearts knit together in love. You know, love is a powerful glue. Do you ever, before you come here, pray, God, help me to love you more and better? When you come here, do you, do, do you ever pray, God, help me love the people here more and better? Now listen, I get it if you're newly saved or you're new here and not very mature in your faith. I, I get it, you just come to church. But you, you, you know what? For anybody here who's got some maturity in their faith, we don't just come here to say, okay, preacher, you, you bless me and entertain me if you can. Oh, okay, singer, give me something good or new. Move my heart. That's not why we really come here. See, a part of coming here, if you're a more mature believer, is so that you can be something to somebody else. I mean, we have people who've come here for years and you've never grasped the fact that it is now your job to be a reach-out person and a help to somebody else who comes here. He wanted their hearts knit together in love. Listen, when I go around and unlock the doors, I think you probably are. I've told you this before. I always pray, God, everybody that comes through this this door, uh, please give them truth and love. When I pray for our children's ministries and our bus and our teens and our teen van, God, uh, every child that comes here, where they find truth and love. Not just one, not just the other. Listen, truth and love, they're the glue that bind us together. In reality, outside of Christ and truth and love, we don't really have that much in common. We're bound here by Christ. Love for Him and love for one another. Do you love the people here? Do you ever pray like that? Why not? Listen, uh, listen, we need 200 lay people for every one of me. We, we need 200 lay people for every Joe Cloward and Josh Miller. And another 100 for Stephen Beatty. Listen, we don't need more lay- we, we need more people who sit in our chairs who say, you know what, when I'm coming to church, it's not all about me. It's not what can I get. And by the way, what you'll find when you come here to give, you'll end up getting. Do you love the people here? Do you ever confess not loving them? Or do you just, are you content to have your reasons, make your excuses for not loving them? He didn't just want their hearts knit together. He wanted them to have the riches of full assurance that understanding brings. Understanding the things of God brings confidence in life and eternity. Have you ever noticed that people, if they don't go to a church like this and haven't become biblically educated, they by and large don't like to talk about spiritual things. 
Say why? They don't have the confidence that understanding the things of God brings. You, 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 you might not be able to quote every verse you, that, uh, to back up what you believe, but listen, if you come here regularly and churches like this regularly and pay attention, you know so much more about the things of God and so much more about the truths of God than most people. You have a confidence and an understanding they don't understand, and that is great riches. Most people, they don't have a healthy assurance of their salvation. They may be saved, but they haven't taken the time to figure out what being saved means and what God did in them when they got saved. They haven't bothered. Listen, no one has a healthy assurance of what's right and wrong until you've learned and understood what our Creator defines as right and wrong. Listen, it is great riches to know what our God is like and what He wants. To understand the things of God and have full assurance of what God has said and promised is to be rich beyond anything gold and silver can buy. And everyone here, if you're a Christian, can be rich in understanding. I hope you have those riches tonight. And if you don't, it's not because our God doesn't want you to have the riches of the full assurance of understanding. It's just that you don't really want to do your part. You can be rich. And then he wanted them to acknowledge the mystery of God and the Father in Christ. The end of verse 2, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and, and of Christ. He said, what in the world is that? You know, over the years... One of the things I've learned is that when you read something and it's really, really hard to understand, you're not sure what it means. When you read five commentaries by Bible believers, generally they say five different things. Uh, the mystery we talked about uh, two weeks ago is very clear from verse 27. The mystery among the Gentiles, which is that Christ in you, the hope of glory. I mean, you couldn't get any clearer about that. Uh, what is he talking about, though, when he talks about the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ? You see, this mystery is somehow linked to God, the Father, and Christ. What is it that wasn't previously revealed? You see, the threefold nature of our Creator is hinted at in the Old Testament, but not clearly revealed. The fact that God would be among men is revealed in the Old Testament. Remember, the virgin who conceived would bear a son who would be called Emmanuel, God with us. But it's not really defined what it's going to mean when God is with us. The Old Testament gives us no clear understanding of what it means when the Bible says that Jehovah, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, appeared to Abraham or appeared to Isaac or God Almighty appeared to Jacob. The Bible doesn't really describe what that means and we kind of don't really get it. We get a little glimpse when Jesus says that no man hath seen the Father at any time. Uh, the only begotten Son hath declared Him. And you begin to think, oh, what's going on in the Old Testament? See, this mystery is most clearly revealed in 1 Timothy 3. Keep your hand there where we are. Go back to 1 Timothy 3. 
By the way, if you have a Bible other than a King James Bible, this verse has changed. I believe the clearest single statement about Jesus being God in the flesh is this verse. I'm not implying there are not other New Testament places that teach that. I'm just saying the clearest single statement about that is here. And it tells us that it's a mystery. Something not previously revealed clearly. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. What is the mystery of godliness? God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Did you see the mystery of godliness? God manifest in the flesh. That is the mystery of God, the Father, and of Christ. That God Himself, God the Son, would take on flesh. That He would become one of us. That the Messiah would be 100% man and 100% God at the same time. That is the mystery of God and the Father and of Christ. See, Paul wanted them to understand this mystery. He wanted them to understand the identity, the preeminence, the full deity of Jesus Christ because of some false doctrine he's going to talk about later in chapter 2. He lays a foundation for tonight upon learning that mystery and upon being reminded of who Jesus really is. You and I are challenged to put Christ where He belongs. For Him to have the preeminence in all things. Listen, it's real easy to sit in a church and sing, oh, how I love Jesus, and all the kinds of good doctrinal things that we sing. I'm going to tell you what, the proof is really in the pudding when we walk away from here. Whether Christ has the preeminence in our life or something else. And I hope tonight your desires for those who look to you in some way, I hope they're the same as Paul's great desires, his heart for the people. Listen, I believe in what I'm doing tonight, and I believe in what you're doing, because I believe those desires are basically the heart's desire of the people that are here on a Wednesday night. That our hearts will be knit together in love. That we would find the comfort of the Holy Ghost. That we would be blessed with the riches of the full understanding and the confidence of knowing who Jesus of Nazareth really was and is. His God, God the Son, manifest in flesh for us. You'd bow your heads and close your eyes.